0: This time of year, right before Easter, trios of crosses spring up all over the place. If you look carefully, you'll see them. They're everywhere. They're in the parking lots of businesses. They're in front of churches. They're out in the countryside. I even have a neighbor who put up a wreath for Easter on her door that features three crosses nestled on the inside. And I have to confess to you that I used to wonder why people bothered with the three. They're lovely, of course, but I thought, well, you know, one cross conveys basically the same message as three. But I've since changed my mind. One cross does not communicate the same message as three. One cross reminds us of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to be sure. But three crosses remind us that prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, there was a conversation. And that conversation revealed something important about the very heart of God. But before we get to that conversation, I think it's important to remember how Jesus ended up on the cross in the first place. If I had to boil it down to one word, it would be power. Jesus threatened those in power. And we know that when folks hold power and it's threatened, they don't react well. People who have power like to keep it. And sometimes they push back so hard that their pushing back looks like the torture and murder of another human being. And that's what happened here. Jesus had been traveling the countryside preaching, teaching, healing, and he had developed a following Before long, the crowds were whispering to one another, perhaps he's the Messiah. They thought that he might be the one who would lead a military insurrection to get rid of the Romans and reestablish the throne of David. Of course, he was not a military leader. He was the peacemaking son of God. But by the time he came into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, The rumors were rampant, and the people were on fire. They lined the streets as he came in, waving palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us. And they threw their cloaks out on the road. It was like he was the head of his own parade. And when the Romans and the religious elite got wind of this, Well, they'd had enough. They conspired together to get rid of him. And everyone knew that the Romans' preferred way of getting rid of troublemakers was the cross. It worked well for them. It was a deterrent, you know, in case anybody else got a crazy idea about pushing back against their power. Because you see in the hands of the Romans, the cross was not just a bloody tool of execution. It was also a very public affair. Well, Jesus, he he felt all this coming. He, He sensed the cross before him. He knew the time was precious. So, when he gathered with his disciples in an upper room to celebrate a last Passover feast, every word, every action was full of meaning. He washed the disciples' feet, setting the example for servanthood. He departed from the ritual of the holy meal of Passover, surprising them by lifting the bread, breaking it and saying, this is my body which is given for you, and then lifting the cup and saying, this is my blood shed for you, and when you eat and you drink these things, do so in remembrance of me. And then he gave them a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. And he did all of this in the presence of Judas, one of the 12, one of his closest friends, part of the inner circle, who would ultimately betray him to his death for a few pieces of silver. Well, then, it was off to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And Gethsemane means olive press. How ironic. Because in the hours to come, his life will be crushed out of him. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him to the garden to pray, and he says to them, Will you please stay awake with me in this time? But they don't. Even in that hour of need, those three men fall asleep leaving Jesus to go apart from them just a bit and fall onto the ground in agony. He was in emotional agony. He is sweating, the Scripture tells us, as if he is sweating great drops of blood. And he cries out to God, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But not my will be done. Yours be done. And you see, friends, in that moment, his fate is sealed because Jesus has made the most fundamental choice human beings can ever make. He has to choose between being faithful and self-preservation. And he chooses to be faithful. And then here is yet another ironic thing that in the hours that follow, all of his disciples, all of his friends, will choose the other way. Even Peter, who has sworn that he will never leave Jesus, that he would die for him, even Peter, they all run away and abandon him, choosing self-preservation. And Jesus is arrested, and mocked, and beaten, and spat upon, and hung on a cross to die. Now, all of the Gospel writers agree that Jesus didn't die alone, but it's only Luke who reports the conversation between Jesus and the men who die with him. Jesus is in the middle, and he has a sign over his head that says, King of the Jews. And on either side, hanging on crosses, are men that Matthew and Mark identify as thieves. Luke just says they're criminals. Well, Call them what you want to – thieves, robbers, cheaters, criminals. Whatever they did, we know it was bad enough that they got a death sentence. And you would think that hanging there, dying a horrific suffering death, those two criminals would not have any extra energy for conversation. But incredibly, they do. One of them summons up the strength to mock Jesus, hey, Messiah, why don't you save yourself and us? Now He doesn't just mutter this under his breath. He says it loud enough that the man on the other side hears it and he responds, hold on, don't you fear God? After all, we're under the same sentence of condemnation and we're getting what we deserve. But this man, this man has been unjustly condemned. He's done nothing wrong. Now, this is a very important point, friends. It was important for Luke to make sure we understood that Jesus died an innocent man, that although he was crucified with criminals, he was not one himself. So that's really important. But I don't think it's the most important part of the conversation. The most important part of the conversation comes next. The thief who defended Jesus says to him, remember me, When you enter into your kingdom, remember me. It's the smallest phrase of hope. It's as if this man has just extended a finger in Jesus' direction. And rather than waving him off, Jesus grasped his hand. And he says, truly, I tell you, today... He will be with me in paradise." How incredible is that? What radical mercy. What amazing grace. Dying on the cross as one of his last acts. Jesus forgives this thief next to him and opens up paradise to him, knowing full well that that man will never attend church or synagogue. He will never study the Bible. He will never make amends for what he has done, and yet he, he, he offers this grace that's not earned or deserved. Friends, did you notice the man doesn't even say he's sorry? He does not even say he's sorry. And yet, Jesus forgives and opens up paradise to him. Now, I gotta tell you that when I point this out, there are some folks every year who get mad at me about this. I mean it. They get upset with me. That kind of mercy makes them uncomfortable. And that they will say, well, what about accountability? What about accountability? Doesn't church attendance and decency and charity and generosity and goodwill, don't those things count? Don't they count for something? Well, of course they count. But friends, we live lives that honor God in response to God's grace you know, do good things, do faithful things, because we believe those things are requirements we fulfill so that we will be given that amazing grace. And besides that, why do we distance ourselves so much from those thieves on the cross? Why do we do that? Sure. I would assume that no one sitting here this morning has been convicted of a crime by the state, but we have all betrayed Christ. We all sin. We have all done things that are wrong. We have all done things that are wrong, and we're not sorry for them. In fact, there's a little phrase that our society throws around about this. You probably have heard it. Sorry, not sorry. Heard that one? Sorry, not sorry. I caused you pain and anguish. Sorry, not sorry. I insulted you or categorized you or marginalized you. Sorry, not sorry. I know this is selfish, but sorry, not sorry. Shoot, friends. We do things we know are wrong. And we keep doing them. Even if we attend church every single Sunday, we still do things that hurt ourselves and others because we're human beings and we are very capable of messing things up. So thanks be to God for this radical mercy, this amazing grace. Do you see what a gift it is? The way that Jesus relates to that thief on the cross is a foreshadowing of how he will respond to the lot of us, offering forgiveness, widest mercy, opening up the gates of heaven to us. No we don't earn it. No we don't deserve it. But that's not how grace works anyway. This conversation is a powerful reminder that God's mercy is not dependent upon what we do for God, but instead is something that God offers because of who God is. So I am very, very grateful for those trios of crosses that spring up everywhere this time of year. One cross reminds us of Jesus' death and resurrection, to be sure. But three crosses remind us that before His death and resurrection, there was a conversation, and that conversation revealed the very heart of God. And it's amazing grace. Will you pray with me? Let me, God, how can we thank you for the gift of forgiveness, for the gift of eternal life, for the amazing grace that you have extended to us through the cross? Lord, help us to remember that your grace is indeed a gift. We simply extend a finger in your direction, and you bestow upon us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Our invitation to Christian discipleship this week, friends, is first to participate in worship.